If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 6. Luke and chapter 6, as we continue our study through the gospel of Luke. I trust that it has been fruitful for you so far. Begin chapter 6 today, go through verse 11. So 6, 1 through 11. Also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well for you to follow along. If you don't have a scripture journal, by the way, and you want one, um, go ahead and grab one on uh, these two tables in the back. They're sitting on there. If you want one, grab one, and that'll be our gift to you, help you uh, work through this book with us. Um, if you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke 6, starting in verse 1. God's Word says, On a Sabbath, while he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked, ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priests to eat. Also gave it to those with him. He said to them, Son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 6, On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. His hand was restored. But they were filled with fury, disgust with one another, what they might do to Jesus. Amen. It's God's word, and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. I have a question for you. How many of you are tired? Just physically or mentally drained? Anybody resemble that? How many of you can trace that tiredness to your busyness? I wonder, have any of you ever said to someone, or even to yourself, I'm just so busy? Have any of you said that before? Have you ever heard someone else tell you how busy they were? Yes? It's almost like this so, sort of status symbol, right? It's a, a boast disguised as a complaint. Being tired and busy are seemingly the primary, I think, default answers in our culture when someone asks, how are you doing? Right? I'm busy. I'm tired. And we're likely telling the truth, right? We are busy. We are tired. There's a story about a woman from another culture that came to visit the United States and began to introduce herself as busy because it, it was, after all, the first thing she heard when meeting new Americans. Hello, I'm busy. She figured it was part of our traditional greeting. So she told everyone she met that that's who she was. About a decade ago, an article by uh, this fellow, Tim Creter, came out ca called The Busy Trap. And it made its way around online, and, and I think it gets to the heart of our claims to busyness. Listen to what he said. 
He says, notice it isn't generally people pulling back-to-back shifts in the ICU or commuting by bus to three minimum wage jobs who tell you how busy they are. It's almost always people whose lamented busyness is purely self-imposed. Work and obligations they've taken on voluntarily, classes and activities they've encouraged their kids to participate in. They're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety because their addiction to busyness and dread what they might have to face in its absence. Even children are busy now, scheduled down to the half hour with classes and extracurricular activities. They come home at the end of the day as tired as grown-ups. The present hysteria is not necessary or inevitable condition of life, says Creter. It's something we've chosen, if only by our acquiescence to it. He says, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge of against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. But he says, I I can't help but wonder whether this hysteronic exhaustion isn't a way of covering up the fact that most of what we do doesn't matter. Do you think he's onto something? Is it possible that our inability to rest and our self-imposed need to fill every waking hour of the day is actually our attempts to fill a void that we were never designed to fill. Do you guys think that's possible? Kevin DeYoung says this in his book, Crazy Busy. The presence of extreme busyness in our lives may point to deeper problems. A pervasive people-pleasing, a restless ambition, a malaise of meaninglessness. The greatest danger with busyness is that there may be greater dangers you never have time to consider. Busyness, he adds, does not mean you are a faithful or fruitful Christian. It only means you're busy, just like everyone else. And like everyone else, your joy, your heart, and your soul are in danger. What we need is the great physician to heal, heal our overscheduled souls if only we could make time for an appointment. What if our inability to rest is not simply because we are too in demand, too booked, too important, but is a testimony to something else lurking beneath the surface? What if our inability to rest physically is related to our inability to rest spiritually? The text we're considering this morning features two scenes that center around Sabbath, which means they're all about rest. And they're all about Jesus which also means they're all about rest. And I think from these two scenes, we will see that what we need in our hyper-anxious and calendar-filled lives, what we need that we are trying to fill with other things is found only in the person of Christ. And only when we find rest in Him will we be able to offer rest to others. So let's, no points this morning, let's just Walk through the text and see what the Lord has for us, okay? Notice the scene opens with Jesus and his disciples walking through some grain fields on what day? On the Sabbath. Well, the disciples are hungry as uh, they go, so they pluck some grain, they rub between their hands, and they eat it. Okay, this is perfectly normal and permissible, all right? In fact, in Deuteronomy 23:25, God commanded that a portion of every farmer's field be left uncollected so that Those who were passing by and were in need could freely take and eat. This is what the disciples did. But the Pharisees see this, 
and they had a problem with it. Can you imagine the Pharisees having a problem with something? Well, their problem was not that the disciples ate, but because they did it on what day? The Sabbath. The Pharisees believed the disciples' actions violate the Sabbath, which was a day intended for rest. Now, how did the disciples do that? Well, you see, some people in ancient Israel did not feel that the Old Testament's 613 laws were specific enough. So what they did is they created what is called the Mishnah, okay? What is not, it's not scripture, it's just a book of extra biblical laws, all right? So it isn't the Old Testament, it's an addition to it. And the Mishnah contained man-made rules on what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. There were, get this, 39 prohibited activities in the Mishnah regarding the Sabbath. And there were things you would guess, and there were silly things like forbidding tying or loosening a knot, sewing more than one stitch, or writing more than one letter. Well, guess what? According to the Pharisees and the Mishnah, the disciples broke four of these rules just by plucking and eating. According to the Mishnah, the disciples were guilty of reaping by plucking the grain, threshing by rubbing the grain in their hands, winnowing by throwing away the husk, and food preparation by eating the grain. Is that silly? But we need to understand the central place that the Sabbath had in this context. The Sabbath was one of the main defining characteristics in Judaism, and they believe that the way in which one observed the Sabbath determined if one was an observant Israelite. And you can see why, right? The Sabbath is the longest of all the Ten Commandments. It's mentioned more times on the laws of Moses and the Old Testament than any other Ten Commandment. And it's the only Ten Commandment mentioned at creation, isn't it? But remember, the Sabbath was created by God as a gift to man because man needs rest. Can I get an amen to that? Man is finite and limited. Humans cannot go and go and go without resting. We, we aren't built like that. God created us to need rest. It, it is a grace, right, from Him to us. But it's also a reminder that we're not Him, isn't it? Like, He could have created us to, need, to not need sleep, but He did. And what does that do? It's a daily reminder of our limitations. Every time we go to bed at night, it is a reminder that we are limited. John Piper says this, sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. Further, as you move through the biblical narrative and you get to Exodus after Genesis, what do you see? You see God showing his kindness and mercy by giving the people a day marked out every week where they could just rest. Rest in the Lord and rest physically from the grind of daily life. The Sabbath command from God, like all commands from God, are for our good, right? Not as offers for us to attempt to earn his favor. They, they were never meant for that. But then, do you see the irony 
of what the Pharisees in the Mishnah did. They took something designed for rest and made it what? A burden. That they were guilty of sticking to the letter of the law while missing the spirit of the law, weren't they? If the day God gave for rest was turned into a burden, then the entire point of it was missed, then where would people get their rest? Let's illustrate it like this. Imagine you were in desperate need of rest and relaxation, and you decided to go fishing. Okay? That's something people do, right, for that? Well, let's say you come to me and you say, Vaughn, I need some time to rest and relax, so I'm going fishing. And I want you to rest too, so why don't you join me? Okay? And I agree, which, let's be honest, I probably wouldn't do. All right? Right, Nathan? He's been trying to get me to go fishing with him for three years and it hasn't worked, but let's pretend I say yes. Let's go rest and relax in a boat. All right? And we get in your car, pick me up, head over to the lake. The whole time we're driving, I just ask questions, right? Where is this lake? How far is it? What kind of fish does it have? Why is it taking so long to get there? And I critique your driving. Why are you going so slow? Pass that car. Why are, you, why are you taking this route? Isn't this other route better? Then we get there, we get in the boat, and I just critique you the whole time. Don't put that boat there. Put it over there. Don't sit like that. Sit like this. Don't cast like that. Cast it this way. Don't reel like that. I could hear Nathan scoffing in my, in, in my head right now at me critiquing his fishing, right? Don't do the reel like this. Do it like this. All right, go. Critiquing everything you do. Never shutting up, okay? How much rest would you be able to get during our trip? None at all. Something intended to give you rest and relaxation has turned into the opposite. A burdensome trip because of my incessant and joyless rule keeping and criticism. This is what the Pharisees and religious leaders have done to the Sabbath, which is put on full display here and in the next scene, isn't it? But Jesus is too smart for them, so he asked them a question based on the Old Testament that has no good answer. He asked, have you not read? Which is like an insult to them, right? Because they think they know their Bibles. But do they really understand it? Jesus reminds them of a story they knew well from 1 Samuel 21 and 22. When David and his companions were on the run, Okay? from Saul, who was trying to kill them. David and his friends, they came to the tabernacle, and David asked for food because they were hungry. But there was no food apart from the bread of presence, which only can be eaten by the priests. But the priest allowed David and his companions to eat it. So in essence, you have that incident in, is a Sabbath violation, as well as being straight up illegal. So Jesus wants to know, did David violate the law or was the law superseded in order to meet human need? This is what Daryl Box says. He says, in effect, the argument becomes, if you condemn my disciples on this one, you also condemn David and his men. Jesus places the officials in a dilemma. If the Pharisees are right, David and his men are guilty. The Pharisees' problem is that biblical text does not question David's action, and neither did the priest at the scene of the crime. Do the officials want to challenge David and the priest? of the Old Testament. You see, there's no good answer. They're not going to critique Israel's greatest king up to that point. So why are they critiquing critiquing Jesus for arguably a less egregious thing? David broke the actual law. The disciples broke some non-biblical book. But even more important is the Pharisees missing the whole point of the Sabbath. 
And even more important than that, they're missing who Jesus is. See, that's the point of this whole section, you understand? That reaches all the way to chapter 9. Luke, with every scene, is confronting us with the question, do you realize who Jesus is? The Pharisees don't know, so Jesus tells them, doesn't he? He's the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is what? Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, once again, is claiming a divine prerogative. He's saying that the Sabbath is his to do with as he wishes. He's claiming that he is the creator, the author, and the owner of the Sabbath. If human need comes in conflict with keeping Sabbath rules, Jesus says, what comes first? Human need. But there's another reason. Jesus draws off that story of David and and, uh, 1 Samuel. David had been anointed king, right? Already in that scene. That's why Saul wanted to kill him. And David, as king, acted as a representative for the whole nation, didn't he? That's what kings do. But then Jesus offers us one of his titles in verse 5. What is it? Son of man. You know what this makes him? The authoritative representative of what? Humanity. He's not only the creator God, took on flesh. He's the perfect man who is the head of a new humanity leading the new way and embodies the new thing God is doing in the world. And so this is what we need to see here, okay? You ready? If you write down, this is a good thing to write down. (coughs) Everything the Sabbath was meant to be and do and accomplish finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Everything the Sabbath was meant to be, do, and accomplish finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus, put another way, is the Sabbath shown up as a person. Yes, the Sabbath was created in order that finite man might find rest in the toils of life and for them to find their ultimate rest in God. But it's also meant to point to the one who would himself come and be humanity's rest. You know what's interesting? About, you know, the other synoptic gospels, Mark and Matthew, recount these incidents from the Sabbath. And in Matthew's version, I want to read you what comes immediately before it. Come to me, says Jesus, immediately. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Do you see? Do you think that was intentional? Of course it was, because we are meant to see that Jesus is the ultimate Sabbath rest. I mean, as Christians, we read this text, and you know what we want to ask? We want to ask, should we observe the Sabbath still? Right? That's what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years, coming to this text and going, do I, do I still observe the Sabbath? But is Luke concerned with that at all? Is he, is he trying to answer that question? No. You know why? Because the wrong one. The question isn't, do Christians still observe the Sabbath? The question is, who is this Jesus? That's the ultimate question. And the answer to the former is found in the latter. Jesus as embodiment of the Sabbath means that we observe the Sabbath every moment of every day to the degree that we rest in the work of Christ on our behalf. Because Jesus as Sabbath means the end of our working in an attempt to earn something from God and man. 
But until we realize this and let it settle into our bones, we'll have no rest in our lives or in our souls. You know, many years ago, Madonna, you know Madonna? Is that somebody you thought I'd bring up today? She, <laughs> Madonna did an interview with Vogue, and she was talking about her career, and she said something that's really, that was very interesting and, and very self-conscious. This is what, listen to what she said. She said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. You see what she's saying there? She's actually willing to admit that she has no rest. Because even if she feels like she's somebody that never lasts long, and she has to do something else, and then something else, and then something else, she hit at the problem, but she hasn't found the answer. See, we think our answer to restlessness is to do more. Isn't that something? Do more, and that'll do the trick. I'll finally find the meaning and purpose of value. Oh, wait, that didn't work. Let's try more. Why am I so tired? And this hamster wheel of self-justification makes humans feel like they're making progress, but really they're just in the same place, only now they're exhausted. You understand, your ultimate exhaustion is not physical. There definitely is that. And we're seeing overwork and being overstretched at, at historic levels. But maybe our physical exhaustion and our constant need to be busy and for everyone to know it is really pointing to something deeper. Maybe our inability to rest is really an inability to trust God. I mean, that's what God intended to show Israel in Exodus, right? When he created, he showed them the Sabbath. He gave them the Sabbath. Do you remember? He forbade them to collect manna on the Sabbath, and he forbade them to collect double the day before because they're supposed to trust that he would provide. They were to trust that he would take care of them. They were to trust that he was all they needed. So they were to rest because God, get this, God equates rest with trust. Their ability to rest would show that they trusted God physically and spiritually. Our ability to rest says the same thing. Friend, are you resting, I wonder? I mean, look at the Pharisees. Why are they so grumpy? You ever wonder that? They're so grumpy all the time. They're so anxious and uptight. Straight up, they're bird-dogging Jesus, right? And the disciples, so that they could what? Find something wrong to point out. They're doing this because they have no rest. They thought the way to please God and impress man was by following the letter of the law to a T. Then God would surely be happy, right? So they worked, and 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 it really didn't matter if their heart was far from God, and it didn't matter if they didn't love their neighbor, at least they didn't sew a needle on Saturdays. And they fasted twice a week and they were morally, outwardly righteous than everybody else, but they were tired. And friend, you might be restless because you might give into the thinking that your status with God is contingent on your deeds or your ability to be good or your abilities or your knowledge or any number of things 
And that can only leave you anxious and restless. Are you trying to justify your life through your work? Or through your schedule? Even through your play or your possessions, your reputation, or the applause of people? Do you guys realize that you could hear the gospel every week and still fall into that kind of thinking? I fall into that thinking all the time. But I have to fight that thing, and I have to fight that thinking and fight it. And you know how to do that? See, the, the little legal, legalist in all of our hearts, you know you have a little legalist in your heart? We'll think the way to comfort ourselves is through self-confidence, right? Like we have to tell ourselves like the Pharisees how good we are and how hard we're trying and how much we do and how we might not be perfect, but at least we're better than the worst person we know. That's not how you find rest. Because that's just jumping back in the hamster wheel. The only way to find rest in our anxiety and our navel gazing and our doubts on if we're doing enough or we're being enough is to look to Jesus. To look to the cross and empty tomb. He did that precisely because we're not good enough. And that's actually good news. And we could never do enough. We could never please God on our own, but he did. Isn't that good news? Our works will never be enough, but his are. Our record will never be clean enough, but his record was spotless. Our death could never atone for our sins, but his did. He's not just the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath. And we will only find rest when we rest in him. Nothing else will provide that true rest. Sam Storm says it this way. We are accepted through faith in the works of Jesus Christ. If you are a child of God, born again, trusting and believing in Jesus for your acceptance with God, rather than in your own works and efforts, you're experiencing the true meaning of Sabbath 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He says, I observe the Sabbath every moment of every day to the degree that I rest in the work of Christ for me. Is that where you find rest, friend? But you see, we need reminding of where our rest should be found, don't we? Do you guys need that reminder? Or we're habitual forgetters of the gospel. On top of that, we're inundated all week through every medium telling us that meaning is found through our activity and our work and our stuff. We're forgetful people who chase other things with all of our might, bang on their ability to bring us rest only to be left empty. We forget that Jesus is our hope and rest. We need to be reminded and reminded often that Jesus is our burden-carrying champion, don't we? How will you be reminded? That's what we're doing right now, right? <laughs> In this moment. Now, Sunday is not the new Christian Sabbath, okay? The New Testament doesn't teach that. But we do see in the New Testament and the early church was them determining to meet on Sunday because that's when Christ rose from the grave. They knew they needed to commemorate every week that their Savior had defeated sin, hell, and death. They also knew they needed to worship Him and join their voices with fellow believers and hear the word preached and take the Lord's Supper and be reminded in every way possible that Jesus was their rest. And that's why we gather every Sunday too. This is to be a space in which in the midst of our noisy, is your life noisy? Busy? Is your life busy? Hurried lives, we can be reminded of Christ's offer to rest. 
a few hours per week where we can attune our hearts with other saints and attend to focusing solely on the Lord. We need that. I, I need it. I, I need the words. I don't know if you knew this, but I need the words that I preach just as much, if not more, than you do. I can't go without singing and the Lord's Supper and the reminders of Christ's beauty and work on my behalf because I'll forget. Being in ministry doesn't make me immune to putting my trust in other things or being restless or anxious or afraid. I need to be told and told and told and told that Jesus is surpassingly beautiful king who bears the yoke of the weak and unable. Do you need that too? And so we should prioritize this, right? The worship gatherings. It must be a non-negotiable part of our weekly rhythms. Our kids and spouses and friends and fellow church members shouldn't have to wonder if we're going to church on Sunday. They shouldn't have to ask. It should be a given. Kevin DeYoung says, are we teaching our kids that Sunday is the day we go to church or the day we try to squeeze in church? Surely there are a few habits more important to pass on to our children than the rock-solid routine of going to church every Sunday. It will be hard for our children to come to the conclusion that church is important if we raise them to think it was only a third or fourth priority for us. It's truly lamentable that so many people profess Christ but don't have time to attend the worship of Him. Too busy for Jesus? Worshiping Him, not a priority, not a delight and joy of our hearts. Imagine being so busy that you don't have a few hours a week to focus solely on the Creator. What's more important than that? You suppose you'll do that for eternity, but you don't feel compelled to do it now? What what do we think we're accomplishing with our time instead that is more important than attending to our souls and the souls of our fellow believers? Are we doing things in our schedule that will benefit us for a day or a week or a month or even a decade or more and not thinking about 10,000 years from now? So busy with things of earth that will degrade and be destroyed that we neglect our eternity? Maybe that's another indication of our restless hearts trying to rest in other things. And worshiping the Lord with the saints whom we have covenanted with shouldn't be some kind of chore. It should be a joy, don't you think? Something we look forward to. How many Christians around the world, have you thought about this? In persecuted countries would jump at the chance to freely attend the worship of the king of the universe with fellow believers who love them and who they love to be reminded about the excellencies of Jesus. How many would jump at that? I love what 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McChain said. He, he preached a sermon called, I Love the Lord's Day. And in it, he said, Jesus created the Lord's Day. And this is why we love it, because we love everything that's Christ. This is what he said. He said, we love his word. It is better to us than thousands of gold and silver. We love his table. It is his banqueting house where his banner over us is love, where he looses our bonds and anoints our eyes and makes our heart burn with holy joy. We love his people because they are his, members of his body, washed in his blood, filled with the Holy Spirit, our brothers and sisters for eternity. And we love the Lord's day because it is his. Every hour of it is dear to us, sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. It reminds us of his love and his finished work and his rest. And we may boldly say that the man does not love the Lord Jesus who does not love the entire Lord's day. That's how we should delight in and regard 
days like today where we could draw near to Christ and fellow believers whom we've devoted ourselves to. And to be reminded again and again, Jesus did it all. And he's happy to carry that burden of yours. Cast your cares on him for he cares for you and rest in him. You're all conquering savior, priest, Sabbath, and king. Don't you need that? I need that. Now, in the next scene, we move from the fields to the synagogue where Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath. And guess who was there? The Pharisees. Luke uses a word there in verse 7 <coughs> for the Pharisees that means more than simply watching. Okay, it's more than that. I think of, uh, many of you know that I was in the Air Force and uh, I was what other branches call military police. And uh, I would describe it like being a cop in a small city with like a big population, okay? And one of my favorite things to do when I was on duty was traffic, all right? You guys like cops who do traffic? So I'd post up in my favorite spot, Patricia. <laughs> so I'd post up in my favorite spot. I'd get the LIDAR out, and I would see who I could catch, right? And when I'd get someone for speeding, I would be looking for how many other violations, right? I can find, you know what I'm saying? Brake lights, driver's license, military ID, insurance, typical stuff like this. But re I really wanted to find other stuff. <laughs> so, so I'd really scrutinize <laughs> to see how many tickets I could write, all right? My record was seven, all right? In other words, I did more than look, right? I looked with the intent to find something. When Luke says the Pharisees watched, he's saying they did something like this, except it had sinister, emotive sense of spying or looking out of the corner of one's eye, right? In other words, their intentions were far from pure. And there's a man there who had a withered hand, and the Pharisees are wondering, would Jesus heal him? Which they think would be a Sabbath violation, right? So they actually want Jesus to heal the man so that they can say he worked on the Sabbath, which was forbidden, of course. You see, healing... Or medical work was not to be done on the Sabbath unless there was a life in danger, a baby was being born, or a circumcision needed to be performed. But they thought that those who didn't need life-saving help, they just wait, right? Just wait a couple days. So, so they look at the man here who has a withered hand, and which hand is it? His right hand. They say it's not life-threatening, he won't die, he, he doesn't need to be healed. He can wait. Does Jesus see things like that? The Pharisees believe following the rules is more important than the needs of people. And again, like I said a bit ago, they stuck to the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law, because if they had read their Old Testaments correctly, they would have been more merciful. Truly, if you go read the prophets, you'll see that God rejects sacrifice, and those following, he actually rejects those following the letter of the law because their hearts are far from him. And they ignore the poor, and they take advantage of widows and orphans, and they oppress the sojourner. And so God says things like, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your assemblies, and I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, they could do religious, religiously, they could do right in accordance with the law. But if it doesn't flow out to mercy and neighbor love, then God doesn't want it. And the Pharisees miss this. So Jesus addresses the man with the withered hand. He says, come stand right here. And, and he has him stand before everyone, and he asks the whole room a question. 
is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Says James Edwards in his commentary, the question about doing good or evil obviously refers to healing the handicapped man. For Jesus, human need possesses a moral imperative. Where good needs to be done, there could be no neutrality. And failure to do good is to contribute to evil. It is thus not simply permissible to heal on the Sabbath. It is right to do so, whether lawful or not. And that's precisely how the question is posed, isn't it? Well, think about the question again. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm to save a life or destroy it? What wiggle room is there in this? Is there a gray area at all? Is Jesus like, there's a third way. According to Jesus, failure to do good is what? Say it. Evil. Failure to do good is evil. Then Jesus looks around and he waits for a response, right? Can you imagine being there for this? Uh, you could probably cut the tension in the room with a knife, but the Pharisees have nothing to say. They're trapped. You know, it's interesting. Mark's account of this says that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Their non-response made Jesus angry and grieved. How could someone, especially these people who were supposed to be religious, be so hard-hearted towards fellow image bearers? They really think they're honoring God by keeping these rules to the hurt of people? I mean, Jesus' question is quite simple, and, and it has an obvious answer. If the choices are do good or do evil on the Sabbath, the choice is obvious, yes? Not to the Pharisees who care more about laws, more about their appearance than people. What kind of religion is that? What kind of religion is that? They really suppose that God would accept their rule-keeping if it came at the expense of their caring for people. But now here comes the test, okay? Will the healing work? Because if God heals the man through Jesus, this shows his endorsement of doing good on the Sabbath, doesn't it? Pharisees are silent. They have nothing to say to Jesus' question. So Jesus tells the man, stretch out your hand, and he heals him like this. Did you note the amount of work that was done to heal the man? Did, did Jesus labor at all? He spoke one sentence. That's all he did. And the man was healed like this because Jesus possesses that kind of authority and God shows his compassion and power through Christ once again. We're meant to see that what Jesus is doing on the day of rest is provide this man precisely with that. Rest. Because Jesus both embodies and provides it. You know what's interesting that we might skip over when we read this is Luke specifies in verse 6 that the man's right hand was withered. Mark and Matthew, they don't they just leave that detail out. Maybe Luke is trying to tell us, while this injury wasn't life-threatening, in a world where you must labor for your food or you don't eat, and almost everyone is right-handed, this man has been restored to be able to work and provide. The Pharisees think this, this, this isn't life-threatening, so it's not urgent. But what if that man is anxious and worried and afraid because he can't provide for his wife and kids. And he hasn't known rest in years. Then he sees those grumps, <laughs> right? They're supposed to be religious and pious. 
And they don't see him as a person to be cared for, but an inconvenience to be used in order to trap Jesus. What does Jesus see in the man? He sees someone who needs rest, doesn't he? And you, friend, whatever is causing you to be restless or anxious or afraid, he sees you too. Do you know that? And he knows you need rest. And just as he called the man with the withered hand to act and stretch his hand out to Jesus, so he calls you to do the same, and that offer never expires and can never be exhausted. Do you realize that we are rightly observing the Sabbath not only when we find our rest in Christ, but when we help others find rest too? Do you realize that? The principle stands. If you could do good, and we do not, then what? We're doing evil. If we could do something good for someone, whether it is convenient or not, whether it is costly or not, we are obligated, don't you see that? By our Lord to do good. Otherwise, we are actively doing evil. Is that, that, that's what Jesus says, isn't it? Yes? The Pharisees found a way out of doing good. And most egregious of all, they used their so-called devotion to God as cover. And when we have an opportunity to do good, do we find excuses in order to withhold aid? No matter how valid we think they are? We must not be like the Pharisees and find ways out of doing good for others because Jesus is asking us the same question. When you have an opportunity to provide someone rest, will you? As he was standing in the synagogue that day, he knew those grumps were there looking to trap him. He knew that this would push them further to what we see in verse 11. To them scheming to want to destroy him. And yet he did it anyway, didn't he? Doing good cost him and it will cost you too. And he thought it was worth the cost to you. Did you know that many university and college campuses had to implement what they called Good Samaritan policies? Have you heard this before? Basically, colleges had, they had problems with people not calling for help for a classmate in need because they were involved in some kind of illegal or prohibitive activity like drinking when they weren't supposed to or doing drugs or violating some university policy. So they didn't call. They'd see a fellow student in need, and they wouldn't call for help because they're afraid they would get in trouble. So these colleges had to create these good Samaritan policies in order to assure students that they won't get in trouble if they call for help. Why do they have to create those policies? Because people refused to get help for a human in need because they thought they themselves would get in trouble. In their selfishness, they would rather their classmate die or be seriously harmed rather than call for help and risk personal punishment. It costs too much to help. And when we find ourselves in a position to do good, to help those in need, to speak up for someone or speak against some injustice or sin, but it would cost us, we must err on the side of doing good, no matter the price. This is what our Lord says, and this is what our Lord modeled. He saw 
a human being in need, and on the day of rest, he thought, I can help give him rest. And so he acted. It didn't matter what the cost was. And friend, follower of Christ, beloved of God, he calls you to do the same thing. You see someone in need. I see someone in need. And we can provide them rest. We must do the right thing. If it costs, it costs. Even better, we are under divine obligation to imitate the Lord who provides us ultimate rest in other that others can get rest too. I love what uh, Jen Wilkins said in a book I would commend to you called 10 Words to Live By. She said this, as Jesus offered physical rest from suffering, so also we can offer rest from suffering to those God places in our path. We can take a meal to a friend who is ill. We can help watch the children of a single mom needing a break. We could tip generously those who are underpaid and rake a yard of an elderly neighbor. Through our churches, we could work collectively to alleviate the suffering of the poor in our communities and in the world. We could pay utility bills and collect diapers for teen moms and help the mentally ill to get proper counseling. We could proclaim with our lips the good news of Christ to those weighed down by guilt. We could proclaim with our obedient lives that true rest is found in living as loved and accepted children of God. We could intercede in prayer for the lost and broken. We could shine like lights in the weary darkness as beacons of Sabbath, restoration, and renewal. All efforts to relieve spiritual suffering or bondage in the name of Jesus Christ show us to be true servants of the Lord of the Sabbath. So as we find rest in Jesus, that doesn't mean we kick our feet up and do nothing. It means we see that we don't need to do anything in order to justify ourselves, and so we could joyfully obey Christ out of delight for our Lord. It means we have a heightened awareness of the weight and the burdens and the restlessness that our friends and family and people in our community are under. And we, with the compassion from our Lord, tell them where we found rest. Now think about this. What was the Pharisees' response to the healing? Look again. <coughs> they just saw a man whose right hand, likely the hand he needed in order to work and provide for his family, was healed in their midst. Did they rejoice? Were they glad that this man could now resume his normal life? Not at all. Instead, what does Luke tell us they do? They plot evil. Literally, they were filled with madness. They have rage that is akin to insanity. And Mark and Matthew say they conspired on how they might destroy him. Isn't it ironic? They were afraid Jesus might do good and therefore transgress the law in their eyes while they are actively plotting evil in their hearts on the Sabbath. Isn't that ironic? The choices were to do good or evil on the Sabbath, and their rigidity and heartlessness has led them to commit evil. They want Jesus dead because he was a threat to them and their self-justifying ways. So in verse 11, the cross looms large, doesn't it? This is only the beginning of the journey that will lead to Jesus' suffering and abandonment and death, even as he was innocent and he was willing to take all of that on if it meant sinners could find rest. He's willing to suffer the restlessness of a cruel death, a cup full of wrath of the worst execution in the history of the world so that we could find in him 
full and final rest so that we could cease our self-justifying ways and take on his justification so that we could lay our busyness and our anxiety and our burdens at his merciful feet. Whatever it is, there's something that is making you tired and restless and anxious and worried and afraid and busy. Whatever you're looking to in order to find meaning and purpose and value that's got you running like a treadmill, exhausted but making no advancement, Jesus offers you today the rest you need. Stop trying to justify yourself through your stuff or your ability to have a full calendar or what people think of you. Find it in Christ because he and he alone provides true rest for weary souls. Every burden you're trying to carry all at once, he has promised to shoulder. Whatever it is, he can handle it. And he promises that one day, here's maybe the best news of all, because of what he's done and will do, all those things will be gone. Every sin you struggle with, all the sorrow and pain, the suffering and confusion, the weariness of just being human in a fallen world, every fear will be taken away along with every tear being wiped from our weary eyes. So friend, would you go to Jesus today? And you know what you should do tomorrow? Go to him tomorrow and go to him the next day. Go to him every day for the rest of your life and find your rest in him and find lasting hope. We can rest here now because we look forward to a rest that will never, ever, ever end. And that's all because of Jesus. Look to him today and every day and you find your rest in him.